Welcome to uh, Glen Allen Bible Church this morning. My name is John Vanderveld. I serve here as the executive pastor. It's a joy to share with you this morning, to preach this morning. We are in week three of a three-week sermon series called The Beautiful Bride. We're looking at God's multi-ethnic vision for the church. And in the beginning of the series, uh, our senior pastor, Kelly, uh, laid out for us kind of a process that we're going to go through as we look at this topic of the beautiful bride, the multi-ethnic vision for the church. The first step in that process was to look at Jesus. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? What did Jesus teach on this idea of a multi-ethnic vision for the church? Then in, in week two, we went to the second step in that process is to, to understand how did the early church deal with this issue, the, the church in Acts. What, did, what were their thoughts and what were their actions and what was God doing in that moment? And, and so in week two, we we looked at the book of Acts, and Kelly walked us through the, the story of uh, Philip meeting with the Ethiopian and saw, uh, we, we learned about God's actions and what he was doing to, to kind of further this multi-ethnic vision for the church in Acts, in the early church. Well, the third part of the process we outlined in, in the very beginning when we started this was that we we're going to then look at the epistles. We we're going to look at what Paul and, and the 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 early church leaders, what they said about this issue and this, this uh, vision for a multi-ethnic church. And so our, our work this morning is to look at, we're going to focus just on Paul, and we're going to focus just on his epistles uh, this morning. We're going to look at what did Paul, what was Paul's instruction to the early church, the church after Acts and, and into the first century, the churches that were established uh, throughout uh, Asia Minor, Asia Minor, what would be modern-day Turkey and in that area, and what were Paul's teachings, what were Paul's instructions to those early uh, churches? Now, I realize that doing an in-depth analysis of all the epistles of Paul on a Sunday morning is it's really not possible. We're going to do our best to, to sort of pull out some key verses and, and ideas that Paul shares uh, in order to, to get a, an understanding of what his teachings were uh, to those churches. And let's remember this morning that Paul's letters, Paul, uh, the, the, the fancy Christian word is epistles, that just means letters. Paul's letters, what were Paul's letters uh, to these churches? We're going to look at these letters, but we need to remember, we need to remind ourselves that, that Paul's letters were not written directly to us. They weren't written to us. They were written to churches scattered throughout the, the region of what is now modern-day Turkey and, and then even into Rome. Paul writes these letters to specific churches, to specific bodies of believers gathered in these places. And although these letters were not written to us, we need to remember that they were, in fact, written for us. That they are included in God's word. These are included in scripture because they are written, in fact, for us. There are lessons to learn from what Paul shared with these early churches that span time and culture and, and all of those things, that there's, there's these lessons that we can learn and draw from, from Paul uh, because they are included in scripture. So that's going to be our job this morning. That's what we're going to do uh, this morning. Now, if you've ever spent any time reading Paul at all, if you've ever spent any time in the epistles at all, you know that Paul's primary objective, the primary thing that's covered in these books of the Bible is the gospel. Paul wants to give and bring clarity on what the gospel is to these churches. 
who Jesus was, what he did, what he died for, and the importance of faith alone in him for salvation. Paul's primary objective in writing these letters to these churches is to further convince them, to further establish in them what the truth of the gospel is. His letters are, are gospel proclamations. Because we know that, and if, if you spend any time in the epistles and, and reading it all in the New Testament, you know that, that these churches were facing unique challenges. Unique challenges. There were people coming to these churches and trying to convince them of things that were other than the gospel that Paul had initially given them. And so Paul is, is, is writing back to these churches. Often you, you hear in his letters, don't forget, remember what you first heard. Remember my gospel, the gospel that I taught you. So Paul's primary objective with his, his letters is to, to convince the people of the gospel, to further the gospel, to to correct some, some uh, wrong understanding of the gospel that had come into these churches and to kind of reestablish what the true gospel really is. But what's unique is that if you go, what's interesting, it's not unique, it's interesting, is that if you go through Paul's letters, you see that primary objective really clearly. But then right next to it, running right alongside this gospel proclamation, is this proclamation of unity. I mean, you can't miss it. There's this proclamation of unity that should be present within the church. He writes about unity in virtually all of his epistles. That unity should be a part of the, the body in Galatia. That unity should be a part of the Roman church. That unity, that we should be known for being unified. He writes in Philippians, and he writes in Ephesians, and he writes in Colossians. So although Paul's primary objective is, is the communication and the furthering of the gospel and the establishment of the gospel running right alongside of it is Paul's teaching and Paul's proclamation about unity. Paul consistently and passionately proclaims unity in the church. He talks about unity between Jews and Gentiles. He talks about unity between men and women. He talks about unity between slave and free, Greek and barbarian. So tied right to Paul's proclamation of the gospel is Paul's proclamation about unity in the church. The message of unity is, is very closely connected to Paul's teaching and Paul's proclamation of the gospel. First, we're going to look at just three epistles this morning. The first one we're going to look at is Galatians. The church in Galatia had been facing some unique challenges when Paul wrote his letter to them. Some Christian Jewish missionaries had actually made their way uh, into the church in Galatia and had been teaching them that Paul's gospel was not exactly correct. That what needed to happen with these Gentile believers that were coming to faith was that they actually needed to take on uh, parts of Judaism. That there were lots of different things that they were trying to convince the church of, mainly that they should be circumcised, that these Gentile believers now needed to be circumcised, that they needed to follow the law in all of its, uh, its uh, parts and pieces, that they needed to be circumcised, they needed to follow the Jewish uh, cleansing rites, they needed to follow the Jewish eating habits. And so they were going back into Galatians saying, guys, Paul didn't get it right. You actually need to become Jewish in some way, shape, or form. 
They were adding to Paul's gospel requirements from Judaism for these Gentile believers. They were trying to to convince the church that that Paul had gotten it wrong and that there were some things that they needed to do. And what's what's dangerous about this is is that they had had reintroduced this idea of, of separation of Jews and Gentiles into the church. So along with eating uh, rights or, or things that you should do in the way that you eat and that you should be circumcised and that should, you should uh, recognize these unique feasts and festivals. There was this teaching that you must, you must actually separate yourselves, that Jews, you, you must separate yourselves from the Gentiles. You shouldn't eat together and be— they're reintroducing this separation of Jew and Gentile. Pastor John MacArthur says this, So what you had was the Jews holding to their own dietary laws— and developing racism towards Gentiles. We saw racism even in the day of Jonah, where he didn't want to see Gentiles repent. Jews resented, hated Gentiles, and they kept separate. So what was happening in Galatia was this reintroduction of this this racism, this Jewish racism that, that they should be separate. So Paul's letter to the Galatians is is addressing this issue. He's addressing the racist beliefs and practices that had reintroduced themselves into the Galatian church. Let me give you a few examples of this. Galatians 2, verse 11 through 13. When Cephas, that's another name for Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul writing. Because he stood condemned, For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So what we see here is Paul confronting Peter about this this new practice of separating himself as a Jew from Gentiles. And Paul confronts this. He calls it hypocrisy. He says, you, you had it right, Peter, but now you're listening to these, these guys coming from James, these Jewish Christian missionaries that are telling you something different, and now you're, you're going back and you're separating yourselves. You're reintroducing these racist beliefs into your church and, and how you're living your life. Paul rebukes Peter because Peter should know better. Peter should know better, so Paul rebukes him. Peter knows that in Christianity, in the church, there are to be no divisions between Jews and Gentiles. The gospel proclaims that there should be and can be no divisions, that all can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. All have equal standing in the church. The church should not be divided, but the church should be united. Paul continues in verse 15 and 16 of Galatians. You who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So we need to see here what Paul is doing really clearly is that when he's condemning Peter and, and he's talking to, to Peter and he rebukes him to his faith, face, this is Paul proclaiming the unity that should be present in the church. But he's also, he's also correcting and, and he's also talking about justification. This is one of Paul's primary reasons for talking about unity in the church is because as soon as we start to separate and say that one group is better than another group, that one group has, has what it takes to be saved by God, we've, we've taken away the power of justification through Christ alone. Are you tracking with me? We're saying that you, something else must be present rather than just Jesus and rather than just his grace and rather than just our faith in him. You're adding to it. And so when you do that, when you, when you separate yourselves and you introduce these racist beliefs and say one group is better than the other and you stratify, you're saying that justification is not happening because of Christ alone. And so when we, we talk about Paul's primary objective of preaching the gospel, this is why we can't separate unity and gospel pro- proclamation. It's because as soon as we become disunified and say one group is better than the other one, we undermine justification. We're saved through faith alone in Christ because of his death and his sacrifice for our sins, for all people. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And Paul continues, Galatians 3, 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the prophet, to the promise. So here we get this, a heavy dose of Paul's proclamation about unity. There are to be no divisions in the church when it comes to the people of God. Under God, all are saved. All are in Christ Jesus. Paul is proclaiming your your age, your race, your ethnicity, your social standing, your gender. All those things matter. They matter in who you are, in your life, and, and how you go through life. But they do not matter as far as it comes to your salvation. These things do not. They do not matter in terms of being justified by God. All can have full inclusion in the life of the church. All are equal and all are unified. There must be unity in the church. No divisions, no stratification based on race or ethnicity. God does not have favorites. It comes from Deuteronomy. He does not have favorites. Justification gives all believers equal status before God and unites them together as one people. All right, let's move to Colossians. We'll spend a little bit less time with Colossians. Let's read Colossians 3, verse 11. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, 
but Christ is all, and Christ is in all. So if we look at the, the verse we just read in Galatians, and we look at this verse we just read in Colossians, there's obviously some, some connection and similarity, right? I mean, clearly things that were happening in Galatia were also happening in Colossae. I mean, Paul's words are, are, are obviously very, very similar. But what we see here in Colossians is, is Paul broadening. He's broadening the argument for unity going beyond just Jew and Gentile into this other category, this, this wider category, this other social stratification that was present. This, this other division that was present in the Greco-Roman world at that time. And that's this category of barbarian, right? Jew, Greek, and barbarian. <laughs> He's saying that there's, in the church, there's, there's to be no divisions. The, the cultural divisions that were present in that day and age, the way that people identified themselves racially and ethnically, where you were either a Greek, you were either a Jew, or you were a barbarian. And this category that, that Paul uses, Scythian, one, one scholar that I was reading this week said, Scythian is the most intense form of barbarian. <laughs> I love how he explains that. So Paul is, is broadening this idea of unity, not just Jews and Gentiles, not just Jew and Greek, but, but a larger category of Gentiles. That everybody, even those that, okay, they're barbarians. Like, there's a reason why we still use that term today, right? Socially, they were not Greek. <laughs> and they were not Jewish. It's this, this catch-all other category. And Paul says, even they are included. There's to be no racial or ethnic division amongst the people of God. Racial, social, ethnic, and cultural barriers are abolished because through Christ, he is equally in all and all are equally in him. There should be this, this unity in the church, in the body of believers, because of Jesus, because of the one, the one that has saved us. All right, let's look at Ephesians. Perhaps no other book of the Bible stresses the unity that should be a part of the body of Christ than Ephesians. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is, is supremely concerned with unity in the church. The centerpiece of Paul's argument concerning this unity in the church is Ephesians 2. More specifically, it's Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. You can go ahead and, and find it in your copy of the scripture this morning. In the verses just preceding this, in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul dealt with our salvation. He dealt with salvation. Christ's work in salvation of individuals. Christ's work in reconciling man back to God through Jesus. This proclamation of the gospel is, is what sets up Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, verses 1 through 10. He, he puts all his attention on, on the gospel and how we are saved and how we are justified. And then he turns his attention to this, 
this new aspect. So if, if we're saved and we're reconciled to God, Paul adds to that proclamation this idea that not only are we reconciled to God, but we are also reconciled to each other. That the church is, is to be unified and bo- bound together, reconciled to each other. That salvation through Christ means forgiveness of sins, but salvation through Christ also means reconciliation in the church and in the body. No ethnic, no racial, no social divisions. Let's read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 together. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So this is the former way things were set up. Paul says then, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create, track with me here, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequentially, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Now again, we see some connections, right? We see some some very similar language in Galatians, in Colossians, and now present here in Ephesians. But again, we, we see some expanding of what Paul is doing here. In Ephesians, he moves just beyond equality. He goes beyond just equality, and he he really begins to define this idea of unity, right? He he gives some some real terminology and some some real examples of what equality looks like. It goes beyond just having equal standing. It goes to this idea of unity, joined together, bonded together. No longer two groups, but one group. It goes beyond that to say one new humanity, one new people, the people of God. No racial, ethnic, social divisions. One new humanity. One new citizenry, one household, one dwelling, one house with Christ as our cornerstone. 
This is some powerful language, isn't it? About unity. What does equality and unity and being bound together actually mean? Well, it means we're a, we're a new group a, from two to one. A new humanity, a new citizenry. We are a household and a dwelling. Not merely equal, but joined, bound together. All right, so I like to ask the question, you guys know, why? why? What is the big deal? Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why did Paul, why did he have this, this proclamation of the gospel and this proclamation of unity? Why? Why does it matter? Well, the most basic, the most basic application of thinking through, like, why did this matter to Paul? Why does this matter to us? If, it's, if it wasn't written directly to us, Dear Glen Ellen Bible Church, I write to you today to tell you about, but it was written for us because it's God's word. Why, why does it matter? Why did it matter to Paul and what's the application? Well, perhaps the most direct application, the most obvious application, direct to us in our modern day, is that there should be no racial, ethnic, cultural division in the church. And I, I doubt, I highly doubt that anybody in this room is going to try to argue w- about Paul. <laughs> that Paul, no, you got it wrong. Paul actually wants a divided church. I don't think anybody is going to do that this morning. But we need to point out the obvious application because as Kelly has, has pointed out in previous sermons, that the church has not always gotten this right. And maybe our church has. Maybe we have done a phenomenal job in this aspect, being unified and not having any social or racial or ethnic divisions in our church. And that's great. Well, we should be reminded of it. We should be reminded of of why we live that way. It should encourage us and inspire us to continue on in the work that we're doing and to be that, that way in our community as well. So the most obvious, the most The most direct and plain application is we should listen to what Paul said to the early church and we should work really hard to make sure there's nothing that is dividing us in our worship or or how we program that is based on, has anything to do with race or ethnicity or social standing. But why? why? Let's go deeper. Why this call for unity? Why no divisions? Why does Paul make this a primary theme in his writing? Let me give you three reasons why I think this is the case. First, it's clear that Paul is proclaiming this unity in the church and this lack of division in the church as God's fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. God's fulfillment to the promise of the promise that he made to Abraham when he when he called Abraham out and he began to establish the nation of Israel which would bring the Messiah that would save everybody Paul writes about unity in the church because that is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in Galatians in Genesis 12 verse 2 and 3 I will make you into a great nation I will bless you I will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And Paul, in Galatians 3, 7 through 9, says 
Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Clearly, clearly to Paul, and clearly the testimony of Scripture is that a unified body of believers, not divided by race or ethnicity or any kind of cultural or social standing, a unified through Christ, because we are all in Christ, and Christ is in all of us. This is a, a direct fulfillment to the promise made to Abraham. We are all heirs, Abraham's seed. This is a primary reason why Paul proclaims unity, is to show that from the beginning, that gospel, that idea of one day a unified body of believers was, was the heart of God from the very beginning. Church, this is not some modern-day idea that we would be unified. This is not just Paul's idea that we, would just, that we would be a unified church. It's actually at the heart of God when he calls Abraham. Paul says he announced to Abraham in advance the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? The story from the very beginning was a unified church, a unified body of believers. Second, I think that second, the second reason that Paul proclaims so consistently and passionately unity is because it allows for a fuller, more magnificent, more true, and more beautiful experience of the kingdom of God. A diverse yet unified church joined together is a heavenly experience right here on earth. I believe that's, that's, this is one of the primary reasons that Paul, in his letters, talks about unity. is because it's a heavenly experience. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our Lord who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is John's vision of what heaven is going to be like. Every tongue and tribe and nation and race and ethnicity represented all together unified and praising God in cleansed condition, white robes, praising God for what he has done, praising God for, for saving them. This is the experience of heaven, the fullness of the kingdom of God. A multitude of people before the throne of Jesus, cleansed by his blood and waving palm branches to celebrate the king, praising him for the salvation that has come to all people. 
And what does that have to do with us? Well, church, our mission, our mission is, is to, to be here on earth, to, to live as agents of that kingdom. Agents of the kingdom of God. Part of our mission and responsibilities are to, to, to have heavenly experiences here on earth and to invite others into that experience, to experience the kingdom of God. It's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Don't miss this. Part of what we want to do is usher in, uh, following Jesus, usher in the kingdom of God into our, our church and into our homes and into our community, that people would see and experience the kingdom of God, what it's really like that they would recognize that they are outside of it and the, the beauty and the goodness of, of what the kingdom is really like, that we would live as, as agents of that kingdom, bringing heavenly experiences here on earth. I think this is one of Paul's primary reasons for talking about unity, is that it's a heavenly experience to hear all different languages praising God, all different skin colors praising God, all different ethnicities praising God. It's one of the reasons, one of the, the strongest arguments for us to become more, more diverse, unified and more diverse here is so that it can be more of a representation of what the heavenly experience will be like. Every tongue and tribe and nation praising God. What a beautiful picture. One that we should long for in our worship. Third and finally, I believe that Paul proclaims this unified vision, this, this vision for a unified body, this vision for a, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial experience, is because Paul wants to keep the church, both then and now, from the damaging effects of racism. I believe that Paul has identified racism as a, a, a unique sin because of the, the damage that it can do in our world. Follow me here. First, I believe that racism is uniquely dangerous because of the damage that it can cause the church. Racism, dividing ourselves on racist lines, cultural ethnic lines. It destroys fellowship. It destroys unity. It destroys community. It destroys worship. A racist church is not a true, beautiful bride of Christ. So it's for this reason that no matter where your church is, no matter what your church looks like, we should consistently do the work. We should consistently do the work as a church, and we should consistently do the work in our own hearts to root out any racism, any racist beliefs that we may have as a body and as individuals. This should be a practice that we regularly do as people and as a church. We shouldn't allow the racism to fester. If we see it and it's present, we should root it out because it has a unique power to damage the church. Second, the sin of racism is unique because it, of the very damage that it can do to our soul. 
this, this could be a whole sermon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on it and pray that, that God works through just touching on it. And this has to do with our understanding of the image of God and how all people are made in his image. Galatians 1 verse 27 says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So all of humanity is created in the image of God. It is a sin to violate in thought, in word, and in deed the divine truth that all humans have equal dignity and worth as persons created in the image of God. And if all mankind... All humans are created in the image of God. The moment that we elevate one race over another, the moment that we treat people unfairly or exclude people or divide people based on the color of their skin or their ethnicity in the church or anywhere in our lives, I would make the argument that we are corrupting the very image of God. This is perhaps the strongest argument for not being a racist is because as soon as you say that one group is more heavenly or godly, one group is created in the image of God, you stand in jeopardy of being on the other side of God's command. You you stand opposed to the second commandment that you shall not make any image or likeness for God. So when you elevate yourself, this is a hard concept to explain in a few minutes, but are you tracking with me? I'll leave it there. (laughs) Don't, (laughs) don't make the image of God anything other than the image of God is present in every single person. Every single person. We cannot in any way, shape, or form, elevate one type of people over another type of people because it puts us in jeopardy of changing the image of God into our likeness. There, that was a better way to say it, right? John Kelvin says this, Remember, not to consider man's evil intentions, but to look upon the image of God in them. Look upon the image of God in them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions, and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. I love that. We should look at every person because they are made in the image of God. That is what we should look at. And we should love and embrace them because of it. Finally, I would say the the damage that racism can cause is unique because it can damage the witness of the church to the watching world. So if racism has a unique damage to the church and the fellowship we have and has a unique damage to our very souls, it has a unique damage that it can do to our witness to the watching world. Let's be honest. The world is around us is looking desperately, desperately for leadership on this issue, aren't they? They're looking for, for leadership, for answers about racism, about race, about unity. They're, they're desperately 
writing about and searching and making videos and blogs and everything about this issue. They're looking for healing and they're looking for hope. And they're looking for what is going to unify us. And the the thing is, church, is that we have the answer. We have the answer. The one who brings healing. The one who can unify us. The one who breaks down dividing walls. The one who brings peace is who? It's Jesus. We have the answer. It's not in some, some critical theory. It's not in some political movement. It's not in some worldly philosophy that we find the answer. It's in the church through Jesus. We have the answer to a watching world. Who's going to get us through the woods on this? Who's going to break down this, this, this sin of racism and the toxicity that's around it? Man, I hope it's us. I hope it's the church and the way that we behave as a body of believers and the way that we behave outside of these walls. That in our neighborhood and in our community, we are agents of the kingdom of God who look on everybody's face and say, I see the image of God in you, and I love you, and I embrace you. Guys, this is the answer. This is the answer. Looking at our hearts and looking at our lives and rooting out any racism that's present in our church and present in our lives and living as people who know and understand the image of God in everyone. And, and being an example to the watching world of unity and peace and healing because of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. I thank you for your word this morning. God, I pray that you will inspire us and convict us where we need to be convicted. That you will motivate us today. Father God, I pray that we will honor you and glorify you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.